All right, let's pick it up in verse 9 here. Good, you didn't hear my, online they didn't hear my failures of not buying something. All right, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patience, endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamon, and Thyatira, and Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And what I was saying here, pause for a minute, there's a pattern that's going to pick up one or two more times, a few times in Revelation, where John hears one thing and turns and sees another. Okay? Remember, he heard a trumpet. He saw a lampstand. Right? Those things. Okay, so there's something happening here, and it's repeated. And so he turns and he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like Uh, burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Here we have all this imagery. Here it starts. Here we are in Revelation. And when I saw him, I felt his feet though dead. But he said, uh, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, that those that that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So as we uh, jump into our text this morning, again, this is a foundational piece for the rest of Revelation, especially in the next uh, three chapters. And uh, so we're going to look at the foundation for the churches and the things to come that are in Jesus Christ, and it's all his person, work, and his return. Uh, We have a little bit more introduction here. We talked about... uh, the writer of this uh, last week being John, uh, most likely the Apostle John, although there is some discussion about that. And so John introduces himself here. He says, I, John, your brother, partner in the tribulation, partner in the kingdom, and in patient endurance. And so although John most likely here is the Apostle, he just comes to us as a brother. And it's just this beautiful piece of humility and um, it is speaking to um, how John sees his role in the churches. And although John is most likely the apostle, he reminds us of uh, this partnership, that we're partners. Uh, the Greek word here at the base is koinia, and uh, koinia uh, is that word that we get for fellowship. Notice here, he is a, a, we have fellowship in tribulation. I, this, this word always just kind of baffles me uh, because I grew up in churches and almost every church had a fellowship hall. 
And what happens in a fellowship hall? Eating happens in a fellowship hall. Chit-chat happens in a fellowship hall. And in the use in, in the Bible is more of a, of a partnership. Look here, it's a partnership in tribulation. What if every church had a tribulation hall? And although John is, John is most like the apostle, he, he emphasizes the work of the Spirit here. Um, this, this whole revelation that he is having here, this apocalypse here, and especially in these first four chapters, he is saying, look, I, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Obviously not a good Baptist. But we, we have this account. He's, he's trying to make sure that we're clear where this came from. Um, interesting, we don't need to, you know, debate it too much, but on the Lord's day, a um, couple different options. Some people have said that it was a, a Passover type of, of time. Uh, most people would say, um, we're talking about uh, the early church referring to Sunday as being the Lord's day. Um, there was some debate, though, about when this was written and when that tradition started. We refer to the Lord's day as Sunday morning. But the question is, did they do that as far back as when John was writing this? In which case, if it wasn't, the Lord's Day is that reference to what we just saw in Zephaniah, where we're talking about the day of the Lord, and he's making that type of reference here. But anyway, he, he is there on this island, and uh, we are reminded of his partnership. First of all, in tribulation, uh, the idea of suffering on account of Jesus Christ is not unique to Revelation, um, Matthew 24, 9 says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake, Jesus said. In Acts 14, 22, Paul strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So the idea of partnering in tribulation is not just an end time thing. I want you to hear that. When we think of the word tribulation, we think of, oh yeah, that seven-year tribulation that is going to happen later. But John is saying that we partner in tribulation all the time. Jesus is saying you should expect to be partnering in tribulation. Second, he said that we're partners in the kingdom. And I really wanted to just pause for a moment. This, this rings true to me as something that we need to emphasize and I, and I thought, what am I going to say about this? This idea that we're partners in the kingdom of God. And, and I, I envisioned when I was preparing this sermon to have several points underneath here. And as I was thinking about what I was going to say about the kingdom and being kingdom-minded, I came across a blog post by a pastor in Nigeria. And uh, his name is Tio Banso. I think it was a Baptist church. But he just, he just, I just want to quote him because I think he pretty much summed it up. He said, the kingdom-mindedness I'm talking about refers to the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Both are used interchangeably in the Bible for God's rule on earth now and full-blown in the future. I like that. Yes, that's what we're talking about. We talk about the kingdom of God. We're talking about here and to come. He said, kingdom-mindedness means being heavenly-minded or being eternity-focused. It refers to making the kingdom of God the nucleus of your living giving top priority to the affairs of the kingdom of God, striving towards the advancement of his kingdom. Being kingdom-minded goes beyond being engrossed in church activities. 
One can be church-centric without being kingdom-minded. Church membership should not be an end, but a means to an end. He's saying that we are partners together in this kingdom-building activity. This is the Apostle John saying this to the churches. This is what we're in partnership with. And then third, he is partner in endurance. Um, And this is going to be something that is going to be repeated here in just a second. So let me me just kind of point this out to you. I said that chapter 1 is kind of the foundation for the rest of this book. Now, just if you have your Bibles, you can just kind of look at this. But in chapter 2, verse 1, this is the words of him who holds the seven stars. Where did we just read that? Chapter 1, verse 13 and 16. Chapter 2, verse uh, 8. Here's the second church. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Where did we just read that? Right? Chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. Verse 12, third church. Pergamum, right? The words of him uh, who has a sharp two-edged sword. Chapter 1, verse 16. Um, and we move into the, the next church, uh, verse 18. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like flames of fire, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 3, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, chapter 1, verse 4 and 16. Um, in, in verse 7, into the angel of the church of Philadelphia, right, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the keys of David, who opens... And no one will shut, and shut, and no one opens. And so again, we have those idea of keys here from chapter 1. It's kind of the reverse of, because they're being opened here. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, the angel of the church of Laodicea, right? The words of the amen, the faithful witness. So all of these things come back into the seven churches that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. Um, John gives us, or Jesus gives us a key, which we wish we had at the end of every chapter. uh, But we don't. And so if you'll notice, we have a key in verse 20. And what I mean by that is he's given us the interpretive key. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we have this one like a son of man, which we see as being Christ. And then we have these stars, which equal the angels of the each churches. And just so you know, now we've just opened up a whole other Pandora's box. Who are these angels of the churches? And I'm not going to solve that problem for you. I tried. But no, I, it, it's a, most likely we're just talking about that each church has an angel. Okay, I'm going to go with there like a guardian angel type. Some people say the angels are, the, another word is messengers. So it's the pastor of each church or the head elder of each church. Um, and then there's about four other different options. The problem with the pastor one for me is that the angels in the rest of Revelation mean angels. They don't mean messengers here. And so I just want to be consistent all the way through. But the problem with that interpretation is why are the angels, then are they also being asked to repent? And I would say no, but they're part of the ones giving the message. It's, it's a, it is an interpretive issue. Uh, so he gives us a key and it doesn't help us. <laughs> and then we have the lampstands, which we understand are the churches. Okay. Now, we have this incredible description of who Jesus is. And so we've done our notes a little bit differently. If you flip your notes over to the back page, there's a chart there. 
and uh, we're, we're just going to kind of work our way through this chart um, and look at these descriptions. Now, when you, we've talked about this before, but when the Bible uses phrases, many times they are what we've called here hyperlinks, okay? And for some of you who aren't computer literate, just work with me a little bit. When you're on a computer uh, web page and it says, you know, uh, find out more information here, and you click here, and it takes you to another, another page. These descriptions are meant to take you to another page, and those are pages from the Old Testament. Um, and so we're going to kind of look at some of those and try to understand the meaning that we're supposed to get out of these phrases. So the first one uh, on your chart there, and I know it's a little kind of hard to read. It's hard to fit a chart on those small pieces of paper. But it's described as a long robe. Uh, with a golden sash. We have this in Daniel chapter 10, uh, Exodus chapter 28, Ezekiel chapter 9. And uh, those are three different references, and they can mean different things. So it could refer to priestly robes. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're, we have a lot of references to, and I'm going to come back to this in a second, to what the priest is going to be wearing, and that is similar here. Um, these are nicer clothes, so it could just mean dignity of a ruler. Um, and in Ezekiel, there's a reference to uh, the, the wearing of the robes and giving of judgment. And so you say, well, which, which hyperlink are we supposed to get? And I, I don't know that we need to pick one here. I, I would say I was leaning towards dignity of ruler if I had to pick one. But the more I think about it, six of the seven Old Testament references have to do with the priestly role. Um, so it's a bigger hyperlink. That one takes you back to more passages. Um, the Ezekiel passage is, is an interesting one, and many commentators made reference to that. The second one here, we have white hair like wool. This was great. Uh, I was studying on uh, Wednesday morning, and I was reading about this. And uh, one of the commentators uh, brought up the idea of wisdom that goes with white hair. I thought I'd get an amen on that one. But all right, okay, so... The, 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 the gray, white hair, and wisdom, and I was reading that, and Frank walked in for staff meeting, and I said, hey, Frank, I got a word from the Lord for you right now. I just read him the passage there. Uh, we also need to deal with, uh, when we're talking about white in, in Revelation, we're also talking about purity, being washed clean. So we have purity and, and dignity, accumulated wisdom here uh, with this reference. The next one is eyes like a flame of fire. Uh, Daniel chapter 10. Um, people have talked about the divine insight. Uh, one person wrote, the divine insight that penetrates the heart of your, of your soul. Ooh. Fierce judgment of the God who knows and acts against those who disobey him. So I think we have uh, insight here and judgment again mentioned. Uh, many references to judgment, which we're going to see. Uh, in, I have another section in here we're not looking at, but I just kind of put it on there looking ahead. Where these, where these ideas are repeated, and a lot of them are repeated in uh, Revelation chapter 9, which is, is the Jesus riding in on the white horse. Okay, so these, these descriptions are, are repeated. Um, feet like burnished bronze, this was a difficult one. Uh, we could have strength and purity. Uh, feet often re uh, reference the direction of one's life. We have the, the, the idea in, in Daniel chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapter 1, but it's a harder one to kind of get the, the full meaning behind. Uh, then he has a voice of one like the roar of many waters. Uh, we see that in Ezekiel chapter 1 um, and Ezekiel chapter 43. I was reading just this morning 
uh, in Psalm 29 in that same type of language is there. It's really fun. I was like, I just like, oh, here's another one. Um, and so we, we see this, and I, it has to do with power and strength. Uh, where are we on here? Yeah, strength and power with the voice of God. Um, number six, right hand, seven stars. Uh, the right hand often, again, represents strength, but specifically strength over what you're holding, power over what you're holding. And then from his mouth, a sword. Most of you probably already picked up on that one, the word of God. Um, and then also just Christ being the bearer of universal judgment. That's how it's used in Revelation chapter 19. And then face like a son. Uh, dignity and, oops, sorry. Oop, that one's not on there. Dignity and glory. Um, and then as I was just kind of uh, studying, again, just kind of looking over stuff this morning, one I forgot is blessing. Uh, in the Old Testament, when it talks about uh, um, God, turn your face upon me has an idea of blessing. Um, so uh, eight things here in this description. Uh, again, I was just kind of looking over this, this again this morning, and I picked up another book that I read months ago, and I'm like, oh, I forgot to see what he did. And, and Eugene Peterson pointed out, interesting, if you take the robes out, um, and we're just looking at the physical description here, which, by the way, this is symbolic, okay? Um, I think you know that, but this has been used in many type of ways. This is what Jesus looked like. No. Okay, this is, all, this is symbolic language here. Um, but if you take the robes away and we just look at this physical description, we have another seven. And he pointed out, if you look at the white hair and the face, uh, those rep represent Jesus' forgiveness and blessing. If you look at the eyes and the mouth, uh, those are relationship. You look at somebody, you speak to somebody. And then you have uh, the feet and the hands to represent our action, what we're doing. And then it ends with the main point, the, the focus in a Hebrew poetry type of way would be the voice, which is what's going to speak out here into the seven churches. Um, great pattern. Um, you know, it's just amazing. Again, you read it several times, and I go, man, I started with the robes. I didn't see a seven, and it just I thought that was interesting. So... I give you that description. Um, we went into depth. Now let's just kind of back up for a second and say, what does this mean? Um, as we look at this being the foundation for the churches, let me just say that again. Jesus, his work, um, his, the person, his character, and his returning is the foundation for the churches. Now, I know that I'm not saying anything that you don't disagree with. Yes, Jesus. Jesus is our foundation. We, we say that. But so did the seven churches that are listed here. If, if you ask the church in Ephesus, if you ask the church in Samaria, if you ask the church in Pergamon, what's the foundation? Well, Jesus. But they're going to be called on the carpet here. They're going to be reminded Jesus isn't quite the foundation. The reason that we have this revelation here is that we would be reminded that Jesus is our foundation. So it might be simple to understand, but it's hard to apply. And so let's just step back and slow down for a minute. The foundation of the church 
And the foundation of what is to come is Jesus Christ, starting with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I've got more points on my notes and on the PowerPoint than you have on your paper, and that's simply because of space. Okay? So I've got, I got three in each section. I've got a little bit more in each section, and you can just kind of listen and you can jot something down. The first thing that stood out to me is that Christ is present. Where is he standing? He is standing in the midst of the lampstand. What are the lampstands? Church. Don't miss that. Jesus is in the midst of his church. Now, this is reassuring. Wow, isn't it good to know that Jesus is here? But it reminds me of the old poem. What if Jesus came to your house to stay a day or two? I mean, what if Jesus was, what if Jesus was really sitting here? He is. Would our conversations in the hall be a little bit different if Jesus was here? Would our activity in worship be a little different if Jesus was here? Would our participation in what the church is doing, would it be different if Jesus is here? And the point is, he is. Now, he is one like the Son of Man, which reminds us of his humanity. And that reminds me that he is sympathetic to our fallings. And in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, we don't, we don't have a high priest who's unaware. We have one that, that lived it, that, that went under, underwent temptations just like we go uh, through temptations. And so we have one that understands us. Um, clearly, this idea of the robe and the sash and all this explanation of holding the churches and, and, and the sword, all this stuff, it, he, we're reminded that he is a ruler. For some reason, for me, as I stood out, maybe it was because, you know, Frank and I talked about it a little bit or whatever it is, but the wisdom that is present here, he is wise. He is, he is within the churches, and he is wise. He knows. We see the feet of bronze, the, talking about his strength. He is mighty, and he is headed in the right direction. We see... Um, that he is through all of this, his power and his might and his voice, that God is sovereign. When we see this pure image and, and this, this uh, sword and all these things, he is true, he is, he is right, he is just. But one more thing that just really stood out to me in this description of Jesus Christ is that clearly he is being portrayed as God. Now, we see in verse 16 that Jesus had a face like the sun. That's God. It says in verse 16, a face shining like the sun in full strength. He is described as the Alpha and the Omega, which God was described in verse 8 as the first and the last. Which is really funny because we're just taking the Greek and the All this stuff, it's like, that's who he is. He's God. One of the pictures of Revelation that's always just stood out to me is if this is the Apostle John, and I really do believe it is, just think with me for a minute. 
This is John who walked with Jesus for three years. In the inner circle, John describes himself as a, as a friend of Jesus. I mean, besides seeing all the miracles and all the things that Jesus did and all the stuff that John witnessed, like, who knows what all, but this sometimes John and Jesus must have been just sitting around a campfire, sitting in a boat, shooting the breeze. I mean, they were, they were close enough, right, that on the cross, Jesus said, will you take care of my mother? I'm paraphrasing, but this is what, John, take care of my mother. I mean, that's a friendship. And when he sees the risen Lord, he doesn't embrace him. He doesn't kiss him on a cheek. What does he do? He fell on the ground like he's dead. John's response to a holy God face to face was being fully aware of his humanity and his sinfulness. Friend, if you think you are going to come face to face with Jesus Christ and have a different outcome, you are sadly mistaken. But by the grace of God, we would all fall dead in his presence. We also see in this passage the work of Christ. Um, Christ is holy. Um, he lived a perfect life. He did what we could not do. He is wearing white. He is powerful. Uh, he, he is holding everything in his hands. His right hand. There's a lot about the right hand kind of in, in the Old Testament. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm married to a left-handed person. And, and I, I get it. You know, we, we have, you know... We're, we know that their people have different strengths, right? But in the Bible, in those times, you know, it was the right hand, I'm sorry. And, uh, but in battle, if you were standing side by side, which was often the case with those who you were going to battle with, in your left hand, you had a shield. In your right hand, you had a sword. Now, oddly enough, your most vulnerable spot is now your right side. This is where you're vulnerable. You are striking here, you are opening up, and you are dependent on the person on your right to cover your spot a little bit. So God being on our right side, God being the right-handed strength, God being, all those are pictures in the Bible of power and strength, safety. Christ's work gives him authority. He's the one that's holding all this. He's in charge. John falls down as if dead. What does Jesus do? Notice, don't miss this. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell his feet as though dead. But he laid what? His right hand. 
He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Christ died and rose again. That is the foundation for the church and what is to come. Now, all this in Revelation is very much about the return of Christ. And again, Christ is the foundation of that. So when we think of his return, we're reminded that Christ sees everything. His blazing eyes in verse 14. Christ sees. I don't think we really live in this reality enough. This idea that that Christ is present. That he hears our speech. That he knows our thoughts and motives. That he's a part of our marriage and our meetings and our ministries. He's not going to be fooled. He sees. And when he returns, he is the judge. I mentioned that a lot of this kind of just uh, peaks back up in Revelation chapter 19. So let me just read a little bit of it to you. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a picture. So many people want to say, "There's the God of the Old Testament seems angry and Jesus is so nice. Take him to Revelation chapter 19 next time. One author, I don't know if I want to go down quite this road, but he says, who shows up to a battle wearing white? Right? I mean, you don't come into a battle wearing white unless you know you aren't going to get dirty. That's confidence. But he's returning as the judge, and we should not take that lightly. And we're reminded that he holds the key. If you, if you, if you missed it here, death and Hades, we're talking about the afterlife. We're talking about hell. And and Jesus has the keys. Which means he can put you in and he can lock you up. So what's the application? Look, I, I want you to see this morning, whether you are a, a scholar of scripture or whether you are brand new to this idea of re- reading Revelation, that everything that we see in Revelation is founded on the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
fact, everything that we see in Scripture is founded on the person and work of Jesus Christ. But John is laying the groundwork here. And so my question to you is this. Does the person, work, and return of Christ shape your relationship with the world that you live in? In other words, are you kingdom-minded? The parables and Revelation and Jesus' teaching, they all remind us that one day we're going to have to stand before our king and give an account to what we did with our lives while he was away. We're going to have to give an account for how we did life, how we raised our kids, what we did with our money, how we behaved in church, what we did with the gifts and talents that he gave us. So based on your understanding, your tradition, your experience, or is it shaped on the person and work of Jesus Christ? Does it shape my relationship with the church? Does it shape my understanding of what is to come? Look, I, please don't misunderstand me. We are saved by grace through faith alone. And if you have repented of your sin and received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you bowed your knee to him, I believe by that profession of faith that you are a follower of Jesus. Amen. You're not going to get locked up to death and Hades. But go back to verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. Your partner in the kingdom. Your partner in endurance. If you can't say you're partnering with that, then you need to take time to examine your own life. What is it you're following? You know, the word endurance, we love as Baptists to remind everybody, once saved, always saved. It's called the perseverance of the saints. It's the endurance of the saints. Are you enduring well? Are you ready to give an account for who God made you, what he's given you, and the time that he's given you? We're going to give an account. And I, I think that we've gotten to this really easy believism, ask Jesus into our heart, do whatever you want, you get to go to heaven. That doesn't sound like my partner in tribulation. That doesn't sound like my partner in endurance. It doesn't sound like being a partner in the kingdom of God. We're going to enter into a place where the person that is in the midst of these churches is about to say, shape up, or I will remove you. These churches are going to get a progress report. And if they don't pick it up, they're getting fired. Because the person, work, and return of Jesus cannot be taken lightly. Let's pray. Uh, thank you uh, for this morning, uh, opportunity to worship, whether that's in person 
or online, and we continue to pray that one day we would all be able to come back together and worship together. But thank you for those that are connecting in different ways that we might, in a way, worship together, study God's word together, be encouraged and equipped together. And so, God, we thank you for the opportunity we have. We pray that we would take your word and apply it to our lives, that we would be encouraged by it, but that we would also be uh, convicted by it, that, that it might change and shape who we are. So we thank you for the opportunity this morning. Uh, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.